Hi, this is Steve Katz, formerly of Blood, Sweat and Tears, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jim Fielder, who was the bassist and an original member of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, one of the seminal bands of the 1960s, which introduced the horn section into the traditional rock lineup. Before that, he played with Buffalo Springfield and with Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. You know, when I was coming of age musically in general and as a bass player in the 60s, there was no one who was a bigger influence on me than Jim Fielder. In fact, I probably practiced more to his bass part on I Can't Quitter from the first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album than to any other song. I practically wore out the grooves on that record. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all of my musical guests, Jim and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of those great BS&T songs, and I'm going to ask Jim about them. You'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow. And in this instance, I've chosen the song called Catch You Later from the album Spring Dance by my band Project Grand Slam. I chose this song because it's got a similar syncopated bass part and feel to the kind of stuff that Jim Fielder blazed the path with in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So, Jim Fielder, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert, and uh, got a funny story for you already. You, you talked about wearing out the grooves on the album. That album had, I think, just over an hour of music, which back in those days, most albums were, oh, anywhere from 45 minutes, you know, 50 minutes, something like that. And so what happened is that the grooves, they had to put in more grooves on the disc. <laughs> so those, each of those grooves was narrower than, than normal. And I've heard that over and over again, how people literally wore that album out. So I, th I think that's why I've got a gold record for that album on my wall. <laughs> That's a fascinating story because, you know, I did hear that there was a limit on these old LPs, the vinyl, as to how far you could go with the grooves until it hit that middle portion of the record, you know, with the hole so that the, the record would spin. So you guys <laughs> tested right up against the limits, huh? Yep. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Well, Jim, what was your dream when you were young? Was it to become a musician? Was it to become a bass player or how did you get there? Well, it, it, it really it, it really didn't become a passion of mine and, until I was uh, in high school. I had uh, 
learned guitar when I was a kid and, uh, you know, just used it kind of playing around the house or whatever, you know, whenever my grandfather had a birthday celebration, you would always say, bring along your guitars, sing us a song. <laughs> so, so I did, and I was learning tunes by Elvis Presley and Ricky Nelson and uh, folks like that back in those days. This is in the 50s. But when I when I hit high school, we were living in uh, Orange County, California, uh, which is a big uh, surfing center. And surf music was the main thing that the kids listened to uh, in that part of the world. So uh, I put together a, a couple of different garage bands playing guitar. And uh, at some point, you know, we never did have a bass player, didn't, and no one knew a bass player. So I said, well, heck, it can't be that difficult. It's the same <laughs> as the load four strings on a guitar. <laughs> I can probably figure this out. And so I started playing bass then. You know, it's so interesting. I've, I've asked my other bass player guess how they got into the bass and nobody had said well right from birth i knew i wanted to be a bass player <laughs> you know they, everybody kind of got into it in a different way i told the story before i played trumpet initially because my father played the trumpet and i therefore learned how to read the treble clef and when the beatles came out and you know ed sullivan and that whole thing happened and we all started to play guitar because you know trumpet wasn't very cool at that point we knew that somebody in the beatles played bass and i volunteered to play bass because i already knew the treble clef my colleagues didn't know either clef and i said okay i'll learn the bass clef so that's how i became a bass player <laughs> great you know it's just one of those things in life. Yeah. Okay. So you were playing the bass. Uh, you were playing guitar. You you switched onto the bass there. I understand that you started off playing with Tim Buckley. Is that right? Yes. He was a classmate of mine when we went to high school together. And uh, he was um, a folk singer. I mean, everybody was back then. <laughs> and uh, would just, just uh, do it by himself. And so I went up to him one day and said, you, you, how would you like uh, to have, have a bass with that? You know, and sounded like a pretty good idea to him. So we started out that way, the two of us, and then uh, added a lead guitar and a drummer later on and had an, had an actual garage band. <laughs> All right. So tell me about Buffalo Springfield. I did not know that you were playing with them when was this? At what point in their career? Uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, very long. The reason I got the gig is that their their bass player, uh, Bruce Palmer, uh, got himself deported back to Canada. And so they, they needed someone yesterday. Right. And uh, I had known them because I played with a group in L.A. that was managed by a guy who managed Buffalo Springfield. So, you know, we uh, hung out together and, um, and everything. So it was uh, perfectly natural for them to, to come to me and, and uh, offer me the gig. And I took it and lasted. This was during the period of time that, for what it's worth, was like a, a hit. It was on the radio. And so they were starting to play some, some pretty, pretty good-sized gigs. 
So Stephen Stills was in the band at that point still, and Neil Young was in the band? Right, and Richie Fure and Dewey Martin from Seattle was the drummer. Um, but just after, oh, about four or five months, uh, Bruce Palmer snuck back into the country, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally snuck across the border. And uh, uh, Stephen uh, gave him the gig back right on the spot. I mean, I was I was fired with virtually no notice. Oh dear! So that was uh, the, that that was probably one of the lowest points in my career. You know, you mentioned the song uh, "For What It's Worth," which you know people have come to think of as an anti-war song, but. What I read about it was that it had nothing to do with an anti-war song. It had to do with some kind of a protest that um, had to do with the music locations in Los Angeles. Right. And Stills wrote this song and it became a giant hit, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, that was, um, oh, what was, what was the name of that club? Um, anyway, it was, it was right on the Sunset Strip and um, it was kind of a, a, an underground music type of uh type of place that it didn't uh hire the folks like who were who were on the charts at the time you know they, they were looking for for new original stuff and uh uh buffalo springfield fit right into that but yeah i, I forget what the the troubadour are we talking about that or that, no, no, that's the, the big troubadour. club yeah the troubadour was a big that that one stayed through the whole all the changes yeah, I can't can't remember exactly what what it was that set it off, but it, it turned into a demonstration, uh, you know, a demonstration on the streets right there on Sunset Boulevard. So traffic was all snarled up and everything. And then, so, they, of course, they called in the police and uh, police back in those days, like like nothing better than grabbing a guy by his long hair and <laughs> throwing him <laughs> to the ground. So it was um, at at. One moment in those demonstrations, people actually started to get paranoid that the, the police would be pulling out their guns. Paranoia runs deep. I remember that oh, line in the song. Yeah, yeah. So my understanding is you went from Buffalo Springfield to the Mothers of Invention. Is that right? Other way around. Uh, I got the Mothers gig. That was uh, uh, my first year in the business, which is what I, I call the, the Herb Cohen epic <laughs> he, he came from new york and he managed people uh most of the people he managed were new york folk singers like uh, uh judy hensky was one uh fred neal and frank zappa was one also that first year i, I did uh, timmy buckley's first album uh i did the original full band arrangement of uh, Fred Neal's uh, Dolphins. I've been searching for the dolphins in the sea. The first demo of that song had me playing bass on it. Somehow I missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> searching for the dolphins in the sea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great, uh, great tune. Timmy Buckley recorded that tune, actually. Uh, so if you want to, if you want to hear it, that's a real good version. And all our ways of war can't change it back again. I've been a searching 
assume it it wound up on one of fred neal's albums i mean it was it was uh, about the biggest thing he'd uh, written at that point so you called frank zappa a folk singer was he really a folk singer at that time or just part of the new york crowd no he he wasn't he actually he wasn't from the new york crowd he was he was an la guy okay and uh herbie found him when herbie came to to new york and that was that was when uh, they just called themselves the mothers <laughs> and they got static from the record label about that so they changed it to the mothers of invention <laughs> i remember very clearly when their first album came out and it, it just kind of blew everybody's mind because it was so off the charts from what was happening at that time you were playing with them during what period uh it would have been uh, the period um I guess one of the first things we did was recorded their second album, Absolutely Free. And uh, Frank had me playing rhythm guitar because they, they had one of the best bass players in the world, uh, uh, Estrada. Um, Roy Estrada. Roy Estrada. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, gosh, if you got him for a bass player, you don't need anyone else. <laughs> so uh, Frank got me a... a electric 12 string guitar and uh, i was playing rhythm guitar on it we did uh, did quite a quite a bit of, t of touring and stuff they that got, got me to new york for the first time it was a uh, uh, the mothers had a gig in in new york they, they were just coming i think for frank thanksgiving weekend got extended all the way through new year's I got to tell you, I, I don't know if it was the same exact moment, but I remember seeing the Mothers of Invention in Greenwich Village right around that time. And why do I remember this? Well, I mean, it was a great show, of course, but halfway through the show, Frank Zappa just laid down on the stage and either pretended or actually went to sleep right yeah. in the middle of the set just stopped everything uh, and of course you know you're a teenage kid at this point you're saying what in the world is going on <laughs> he was something else wasn't he that's funny all right so let's move on to blood sweat and tears i mean that was your your premier gig tell me how you got to that and uh how did you become part of the band okay well this is part of a, a, a real you know stick with what you believe in kind of story after I'd been let go by Buffalo Springfield, I got really down on myself and said, oh, you're a terrible player, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you going to do now? Here I am sitting in this, this beautiful house up in Laurel Canyon uh, that I could now no longer afford. And I just uh, sat there with my, uh, with my bass not even plugged in, just doing finger exercises all up and down the neck. Got the speed going. Uh, uh, and, and really kind of it, established my style there on the on the floor of my uh, bedroom. And uh, my next door neighbor was uh, a fellow named Jim Volby, who was known as, as Harpo 
with uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. He was the lead guitar player for Paul Revere and the Raiders. So I'm sitting out there one morning having having my cup of coffee, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I look over <clears throat> Jim's house, and uh, he's sitting out on his deck with with uh, uh, another guy. Uh, had his back to me, and I looked over there and said, "Hey, hey, Jim, how you doing?" You know. And, and at, at this point, the, the guy turned around and I realized it was Al Cooper. You know, I'd run into him on several occasions up at the, at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And, you know, we had done um, shows with the Blues Project on a, a few different occasions. So I, I knew who he was. He knew who I was. He looks and said, Jim, hey, man, come on down here. I got, I got this idea. I want to run past you. And that's. And he told me, I mean, had the whole layout of what would be Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know, the four-piece horn section. He had, he had a bunch of tunes that he'd written. Um, I Can't Quitter is one of them. And, I mean, in his, in his mind, he was already ready to do the first album. But, you know, had this little uh, niggling uh, uh, detail of, well, got to put a band together. <laughs> <laughs> So I came out to New York, sold, sold my 57 Chevy and uh, uh, flew out to New York, um, was uh, uh, put up on, on the couch by uh, several friends that I had there, one of whom was Billy Mundy, great drummer, who was uh, a mother for a while. And we started putting the band together. He already had Steve Katz and Bobby Columbi ready to go. So we started out just the four of us uh, and running, learning uh, a lot of these tunes that Al had written and uh, kind of, you know, thinking over what what kind of arrangements are we going to do with the, once we get the horn section together. But we actually did uh, did a few gigs just as just as a rhythm section, played several times at the Cafe Agogo in, in Greenwich Village. And uh, when the Fillmore East opened, uh, we had we had expanded to a, a quintet. We had added uh, Freddie Lipsius, who played alto sax, and uh, uh, had the kind of music education that, that made it easy for him to to write these horn arrangements. Al would just kind of you know sing to him what he wanted to hear, and Freddie could write it right down. But we actually did a gig at the at the Fillmore East as a as a quintet. Uh, so we had you know, started to to uh, develop a name for ourselves in New York. Uh, a lot of people in in New York knew knew who we were and uh, would come out to our shows. We used to have, especially when we played the Cafe at Go Go, which only held a couple of hundred people. There'd be a, a line around the block. You know, a lot of times we were uh, supposed to do two shows a night. We had to, would have to add a third one because we had so many people who wanted to get in and see it. Well, you know, Cooper and, and Katz were kind of famous musicians in the New York area from the Blues Project. Exactly. And I remember them, you know, I saw a number of their gigs when that band was, was you know, in formation. And when they were playing around the New York area, when Blood, Sweat and Tears was put together, you know, people probably don't recognize or at least some people don't recognize just how novel it was 
to put a horn section into a rock band because right. really nobody had done it. It was, it was blood, sweat and tears in Chicago that kind of set the tone for this. Right. And you got such marvelous players and the arrangements that you guys came up with were just spectacular. We're going to talk about a couple of them going forward. And I told this little story, you know, I had Steve Katz on the, on the podcast as well. And Steve told some stories about the whole formation of blood, sweat and tears and the like. But I, I mentioned that, you know, when, when I was putting my first album together, which was back in the uh, early nineties, I had a song that required a certain solo portion and uh, somebody had suggested to me, why don't you get a, a, maybe a trumpet player to do that solo? And I said, yeah, well, that's not a bad idea. Who do you have in mind? They said, uh, well, how about Randy Brecker? I said, really? We get Randy to do this? And uh, they said, yeah, sure. No problem. So they called up Randy. He came and he listened one time to the song and then he hit the solo on the first take and it was magnificent. And Steve said to me, yeah, he did the same thing for you guys in Blood, Sweat and Tears a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. Randy was, uh, boy, he was, he was amazing. So you had such great musicians and that, of course, that combined with great music makes for a great band. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to hosting this Follow Your Dream podcast. In fact, I just released my 13th album, all since I followed my dream after I turned 60. The album is called It's Alive, and it's a live recording by my band, Project Grand Slam, featuring 13 of our greatest hits, recorded at festivals in Pennsylvania and Serbia. The reviewers have called it a masterpiece and an instant classic. I introduced this album through a podcast episode, which has now been downloaded by thousands of listeners from over 120 countries, which shows the power and worldwide reach of this podcast. When I began the podcast, I had no idea where it would go. But here we are just over two years later, and the podcast is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. It's been a joyride for me, my guests, and for my thousands of listeners. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com to check out all of our episodes, our famous guests, and much more. I want to thank you for listening, and keep on rocking. You know, Jim, at this point, why don't we just segue into the song fest? Because we're, we're talking about Blood, Sweat and Tears, and we got four songs lined up to talk about and to listen to that are all Blood, Sweat and Tears songs. And they're all terrific in their own right, all terrific. The first one that I've got now underneath my, my voice is House in the Country 
from your first album. Tell us about that. Give me the backstory. What was happening? Well, uh, there was a um, psychiatrist in New York that uh, Alan and Steve had been uh, had been seeing just to, you know, kind of talk through some of their problems with someone. wasn't a big deal. You know, it's not like they were uh, contemplating suicide or anything like that. They were only contemplating killing each other. <laughs> that, right. story. <laughs> that, that would that would come. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this psychiatrist had a had a, a house up in the country. Uh, it's just upstate New York or something. And uh, I guess he would he would have sessions where he'd get all of his patients to come up and uh, to spend the night. And, you know, it, it was kind of like a. Uh, 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 what do you call it? A, a group uh, group therapy. Group therapy, right? Thank you. And so this the the song was just kind of uh, telling the story of uh, these these sessions they had up in the in the country with their psychiatrist. And uh, of course, uh, uh, we really uh, joked it up a lot. And that was the. Uh, lyrics are, are hilarious, really, <laughs> and you listen to them. Yeah, they are definitely different lyrics, and it's got some funny vocal effects on it as well, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, it was different for you. Very 1960s, if you know what I mean. You uh-huh. can tell it came out of this. I said to Steve Katz, you know, one of his songs was was Megan's Gypsy Eyes, mm-hmm. and it had that Andialine keyboard. Right. I said to him, that was so different. I mean, I'd never heard that before. I asked him, I said, has anyone ever used it afterwards? He said, I don't think so. I said, so that was the first and the last time <laughs> that an Andialine was ever used. <laughs> on a on pop music anyway yeah that album child is father to the man had you know it was a very 60s kind of sound you know there was an era and there was a sound i mean the great songs but it, it had that 60s vibe don't you agree yep absolutely i mean everything that came out of that era was kind of preceded by the beatles and uh, so the the beatles taught us all about what you know modern rock and roll can be Right. Right. We kind of just took it from there. Okay. All right. The next song from the same album is that song that I started out with, I Can't Quitter. And uh, again, I don't want to make more of this than I should, but I thought your bass playing on that song in particular was just so exquisite. The sound that you got also, it, it was a deep, commanding sound, you know, mm-hmm. funky. You, you just, you made that record for me. And I must have played that record 
a thousand times. So if I wore it out, it was because of you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was, um, uh, you know, making, making that album was, was just amazing. You know, that, uh, Al Cooper had sold the idea of the band to, um, Columbia records, uh, president, um, was it Clive Davis at that time? Clive Davis. Thank you. Thank you. Don't, don't get old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do it plenty of times. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. Anyway. So it's like he had a contract ready for us before the band was even put together. He had that much confidence in Al. So it, it took about two months to get the band rehearsed with all these new charts and everything on the tunes that we were going to do on the album. Uh, and then when we went into the studio, the whole thing was done in two weeks. Hmm. I mean, from, uh, from sound check to final mix, two weeks. Yeah. That kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Does it? Right. Right. So there was a big change, obviously, between that first album and then your next album, Cooper left the band, David Clayton Thomas comes in, Right. Tell us your version of, you know, how that happened. Well, you know, it's 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 something I was kind of on the fringes of it at the time. But I, I was aware that Steve and Bobby in particular were not happy with a, a lot of things about Al. It, it, it didn't think his his voice uh, was the right voice for the band. Uh you know, the, a lot of the uh, arrangement ideas he was he was coming up with were were the you know less than than what we'd already done on that first album, and so uh, you know they they went they went to Alan basically said we we think the band should have more of a say in the in the creative process, namely you know picking songs. Uh, helping helping with arrangements, um, you know, coming up with with ideas from from all over the band. You know, when you when you consider the the personnel that were in that band, I mean, Cooper Cooper was the the least ed musically educated <laughs> of of uh, all. So we we thought he'd you know he he'd say, oh, that's a great idea, and we'll, we'll work work that up. Instead, he kind of said, well, it's, it's my way or the highway. So he wanted to, he wanted to be in, in total 100% control of, of directing the creative process. And uh, so he, uh, he left it. it. It's not even like we, we fired him. I, we, we couldn't do that. We were all uh, equal members of the corporation that was Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So we couldn't, couldn't fire any of the the original people but he just he left he said that's that's it i'm done and uh so that that uh through i mean we had we had bookings and everything we needed to to put the, the band back together as, as uh, quickly as possible we had heard david clayton thomas sing uh he's from canada of course and he would he would come down. He put together a little rhythm section of uh, great players from uh, Toronto, and would come down to New York, kind of uh, on the sly. I mean, they probably came into the into the country as tourists. <laughs> right. Certainly didn't didn't have any any work visas, 
but he would play these little clubs in uh, in New York, one of which was called The Scene, which is owned by a guy named Steve Paul, who is mostly famous for, for being Tiny Tim's manager. <laughs> and Tiny Tim was, he was like the, the, the house act. <laughs> Anytime you were going to going to play there you you knew your your show was going to be started by tiny tim <laughs> so anyway we we saw david uh, there and then said man remember that that singer from toronto said, yeah let's let's see if he's available and he was <laughs> he had heard the first album and he, he thought that was uh, that would be a great thing for him to do right off the bat his voice was so obviously the perfect voice for a band with that much power and uh yeah it was uh it, it was uh, obviously the right way to go with him we we had to change a couple of others randy brecker left he went with horace silver so we had we actually had to come up with with uh, two trumpet players one of whom was was lou soloff, lou soloff yeah though so, oh, one of the, the best that ever lived and uh, Dick Halligan, who had been playing trombone, moved over to the organ because, I mean, he's one of these guys who can play every instrument there is. At one point in, in Blood, Sweat and Tears, there were there were four guys in the band who, who could play bass better than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that must have been intimidating, huh? Right. So anyway, we got the band put back together and, uh, you know, most of what we did uh, at that point was uh, uh, stuff from the first album and a couple of other things that we gathered together and and we were entering the the phase where we would begin working on the second album so it was uh, you know a matter of trying trying tunes out see if uh, see if they made any sense for us and, and getting them arranged and getting ready to go into the studio well, look, the uh, the second album, of course, was magnificent. David Clayton Thomas fit, you know, like a, a hand in a glove with, with your sound. In fact, you know, I, I happened to catch a YouTube of him singing recently within the last several years. And of course, he's playing all of the Blood, Sweat and Tears songs. But the point I'm making is his voice still sounded as good as it did back then. And that's right. pretty remarkable because guys don't usually maintain the voice as long as he has been able to do so. Yeah, he's he's aging right along with the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's aging well, let's put it that way. Very well, very well indeed. Okay, so one of the songs that I'm now going to be playing comes from the, that second album. It's one of Steve's songs. It's called Sometimes in Winter. And, you know, he had at least one song on, I think, both of your albums, uh, the first two albums. And the reason I chose that song is because, again, as a bass player, I'm attuned to what you were playing. And I felt all along, and this is right from the beginning when I first heard it, that that little thing that you did in the middle portion of the song, you did like a run, it was almost like a little arpeggio type of run. And it was so beautiful. It was so tasteful and right. And I said, perfect. So we're hearing that now. Now you're gone, girl. 
and the lampposts call your name I can hear them how did you come up with that well it's just it's really just a scale run do 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 and then down down the step do 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 and so it was just kind of like one of those finger exercises that I'd practiced to death a couple of years before well it didn't feel like an exercise it felt like it was perfect it was you know put into the right place in the song so kudos to you oh thanks all right. And we got one more song to play right now. It's again from the second Blood, Sweat and Tears album. It's your magnificent version of God Bless the Child by Billy Holiday. While the weak ones fade, empty pockets don't ever make the grave. Cause mama may have. Papa may have But God bless the child That's got his own That's got his own Can you uh, just give us the backstory on that? Who did the arrangement on that song? It was such a brilliant arrangement. So many rhythm changes and, you know, it was intense. It was wonderful. So tell us a little bit about that song. Yes, interesting. That is the perfect question to ask when we're talking about the transition from Cooper band to the, the Clayton Thomas band. We had already picked that song. I mean, it's it's a classic, you know, a jazz classic, uh, Billie Holiday. And so we knew we were, were going to do the tune, but we hadn't, hadn't uh, done the arrangement yet. And it's one going by the old formula, Al and would get together with Freddie Lipsius and they would have come up with a chart. So I said, well, who's, who's going to do the chart on this one? Dick Halligan raised his hand and said, I can. <laughs> and man, could he ever. I mean, we had, we had never been uh, aware of, of Dick's arranging ability, but he is just, just amazing. I can't remember now which, which, music school he went to it was it was one of the biggies well it was it was a breathtaking arrangement there's no question about it right and so it's like we sat down and played that arrangement and it's almost like this 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 gush of relief came over the entire band said we've got someone who can write charts and he inspired the other guys to to get into it too um, but he was from that moment on, he was, he was our go-to arranger. So it's, you know, besides just being a great song, wonderful ode to, to what it's like, uh, being, a, a famous woman of color in New York. And so kind of a, uh, kind of an ode to, to Billie Holiday. And uh, man, it just it just worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could say that about that entire album. I mean, you you won every award that was imaginable at that time for that second Blood, Sweat, and Tears album. Yeah. And then, of course, you went on to record several more albums. They all had big hits on them. It must have been quite a run. 
it was it really was uh amazing and um when it came time for for me to take my leave it was i i, I knew i had in my uh, resume something that that really rang clear absolutely i mean you know you were the guy <laughs> for sure you were the guy we've been talking to jim fielder the great bass player for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and before that, The Mothers of Invention and Buffalo Springfield. Jim, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was just fantastic. Oh, thank you. It was uh, really great talking with you, man. And now we're going to listen to that song of mine that started off the episode. It's called Catch You Later. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Music.